Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. The sermon text is 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. When I pick the Old Testament reading, I, I think you know this, try to pick a text that corresponds to the New Testament reading. I don't always explicitly say so or draw out all of the connections for you, but I hope that you can see the connections, and, and maybe it's even something for you to consider later today as you read scripture yourself uh, to, to go back to the Old Testament, New Testament reading and to, and to see the connections uh, for yourself. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, And keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters." I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Who says the gospel is not present in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters? Here it is in the gospel of Isaiah, as some call it. 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15 is the sermon text for today. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8. The Apostle Paul again writes to his co-worker Timothy, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So far, the reading of God's most holy word, we do pray that the Lord would add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As we consider this passage today, it is important that we remember Paul's purpose for writing to his co-worker, Timothy. Paul's purpose for writing can be discerned by simply reading the letter, but it is stated directly in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and there we read, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
And so Paul just directly says it. His primary concern in writing to his coworker Timothy was to promote good order within the church of Ephesus. I'm writing to you, Timothy, so that you might know how one is to behave in the church of the living God. He wrote so that members and ministers in Ephesus would know how to behave within the church. First, Paul addressed Timothy directly and charged him to fulfill his ministry in the church of Ephesus. Among other things, he, Timothy, was to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. That is 1 Timothy 1, 3-4. He, Timothy, was to wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. That is 1 Timothy 1, 18 and following. And then, after this, Paul urged Timothy to see to it that the church fulfill its calling. And what was the very first thing that Paul urged the church to do? He said, be sure that the church prays. Be sure that the church prays. Chapter 2, verse 1, first of all then, first in sequence, I think also first in importance, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I hope here you are able to make the connection between what Paul says here to Timothy and what we just read from Isaiah the prophet, that the people of God, the household of God, the church of God, is going to be a house of prayer for all people. And then after this, um, the Apostle Paul turns his attention to the genders. First, he addresses the men in the congregation, and after this, he addresses the women in the congregation. I want for you to notice from the outset that both are to pray. Both are to pray. Both are to offer up supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people. But they are to do so being aware of their particular propensities to sin. Both are to lift up holy hands to the Lord in prayer. But the men, we are told, are to teach and have authority within Christ's church. And we will see why in just a moment. And yes, brothers and sisters, in case you're wondering, I am well aware of how offensive this is to many within our culture. And yes, I'm also aware that many within the professing church have also taken offense at this passage and have, in one way or another, attempted to, to just explain it away, to dismiss it. Most of these, those who profess faith in Christ and who do not like this passage and attempt to explain it away, will, will simply say that Paul's view concerning gender roles belong to a bygone era but we have progressed beyond them. But this interpretation, brothers and sisters, simply will not stand. For here, Paul roots his teaching not in the ever-shifting tides of culture, but in the triune God's fixed design at creation. In the beginning, God, who is one in three, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Paul roots his teaching concerning gender roles within the church, also gender roles within the family, in creation and not in the ever-shifting tides of culture. Men and women are of equal dignity and worth. Both are fully human. Both are image bearers of God. Never can we lose sight of this fundamental unity that exists between male and female. The result will be oppression if we lose sight of this fundamental unity. Some have lost sight of it. Oppression has taken place in the world, usually men oppressing women. So we must not lose sight of this fundamental unity, but neither can we lose sight of the diversity. Men and women 
are not the same. They are different physiologically, they are different emotionally, and according to God's design, they are to fulfill different roles within the family and the church. And to lose sight of the fundamental unity that exists between men and women will lead to oppression, but to lose sight of what differentiates men and women will lead to disorder. And disorder is what we are witnessing in our culture. It is what we are witnessing in our families. It's even what we are witnessing within our churches, for many have rejected the distinctions that God himself has made at creation. When contemplating the human race and when considering the unity and diversity of male and female genders, nothing is more fundamental than this. Again, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is where we must begin as we consider genders, males and females. As I have said, Paul's stated purpose in writing to Timothy was to promote good order within the church in Ephesus. It is not surprising then that he addresses men and women from the outset. As Paul considered the members of the church in Ephesus, members who stood before God and Christ as equals, he classified them as men and women, males and females, and rightly so. For though they are one, they are also diverse Both men and women have a particular role to play in Christ's church, and this is according to God's design. First, Paul addresses the males within the congregation, saying in verse 8, I desire that then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The whole church has already been exhorted to pray. We've already read verse 1 of chapter 2 again, where the whole church is urged to offer up supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to God for all people. But here the apostle addresses men in particular. He addresses men in particular, and the men of the church must pray, he says. In fact, they are to lead in prayer. I think him mentioning them first does imply this. They are to lead in prayer. And this is why Paul mentions them first, and this is why... Paul explicitly urges the men to pray, saying, I desire then in every place that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Sadly, as you know, in many churches, it is the women who pray, while the men remain silent or absent themselves from the prayer meetings of the church. Why is this? I think there could be many reasons for it. But perhaps one of the reasons is pride. Perhaps men do struggle with pride. To pray, one must be humble. For in prayer, we acknowledge the one who is higher than us. To pray, we admit that we are under his authority. When we pray, we admit that we are not in control. When we pray, we confess that we are needy. And sometimes men do struggle to admit all of these things. Men struggle to admit that they are under authority, that they are needy before the Lord. And perhaps this is one of the things that keeps men from praying. If a man is prideful, he will not pray. But if a man is humble before God, he will bow the knee before his Father in heaven. But undoubtedly, there are other reasons for prayerlessness. Uh, But I think that pride may be one of the primary ones. Notice that the apostle says that men are to pray in every place. Of course, men are to pray in private. They are also to pray in their families. But when the apostle says that men are to pray in every place, I think he likely has in mind the various meeting places of the church. When the church assembles together, the, the men are to pray. 
As we will see, the apostle has the church gathered in mind as he writes this passage. He has the church gathered or assembled in mind when he gives instructions to men and to women and to the particular roles that they are to play within Christ's church. The men are to pray whenever and wherever the church assembles. And when they pray, they are to lift up holy hands to the Lord. I do not think this means that when men pray, they must lift up their hands. I think that would be a misinterpretation of this passage. In fact, there are many postures for prayer mentioned in the Holy Scriptures. Men may pray with their faces bowed to the earth. They may kneel. They may look heavenward. There is not one posture appropriate for all prayer, but I think we are to see here that posture does matter, for it is an expression of the disposition of the heart. And maybe this is something we can grow in here at Emmaus, brothers and sisters, to think about our posture in prayer. We should be mindful of our posture. When you pray with your hands lifted up, I think it does express with the body neediness and dependence. We are reaching out to the Father, up to the Father, saying, Lord, Lord, help us. We are, we are needy. Our hands are open. We are ready to receive something from you, Lord. Come and help us in our time of need. Christian men should not hesitate to express that they are needy and dependent upon our Father who is in heaven. The apostle is not here demanding that we always pray with this posture, but he is demanding that we be holy. What kind of hands are we to lift up to the Lord? We are to lift up holy hands. Of course, this means that we are to come to the Father having been made holy through faith in Christ, having been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But more than this, it also is an exhortation to be holy. We engage in the activities of life with our hands. And we are to be sure that our hands are holy, meaning that our way of life is holy and our conduct is pure when we lift our hands up to the Lord in prayer. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is Peter's exhortation to the church, 1 Peter 1.14 and following. And so we do have this, this privilege as God's chosen people. We have been made holy by the blood of the Lamb, but we are to walk in holiness in the whole of life. Brothers, pursue holiness in the whole of life. That is what you must be exhorted to here this morning. You are to pray, but you are to lift up holy hands to the Lord in prayer. You are to live in obedience to the Lord in thought, word, and deed. When you sin against God, be sure that you repent quickly and sincerely, knowing for sure that your prayers will be hindered should you go on living in unrepentant sin. Peter speaks of this reality, actually, in 1 Peter 3, 7. There he is addressing husbands. But he says to them, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you hear that? threat, that warning that the apostle delivers. Men do this. Treat your wives in a respectful way. Show honor to them. Understand them. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. And if you don't, you can be sure of this, men. Your prayers will be hindered. Your prayers will be hindered. There will be a kind of disruption in that relationship that you have with God. It is not that you will be cut off from God, but there will be a a hindrance to your prayers that is experienced when you go on living in sin in this way. And of course, the same is true when we go on living in sin of other kinds as well. It is appalling to God 
when a man lives in unrepentant sin and then lifts his filthy hands to him in prayer. Is that stated too strongly? I don't think it is. It is appalling to God when you are living in unrepentant sin and then you come to God and lift your hands up to him in prayer. Yes, of course, the father is merciful and kind. I'm not denying that. He is eager to embrace the prodigal son. But the point is this. Turn from your sins. Brothers, believe upon Christ. Pursue holiness. Pray, lifting holy hands to the Lord. Specifically, the apostle insists that men put away anger and quarreling. Do you see that in the text? Of course, men are to put away all sin. But why do you think the apostle highlights these sins? Why does he say anger and quarreling? I think it is not difficult to see that these are sins that plague men more than women. There are indeed exceptions to the rule. Sometimes women struggle with anger and quarreling. But men do tend to struggle with anger and quarreling more often, I think. Anger might also be translated as wrath. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or quarreling, we may say. Certainly this is what the apostle has in mind. He is forbidding wrath or anger that is burned out of control. There is such thing as righteous anger, brothers. We should never forget that. There is such thing as righteous anger. For example, it is right for you to be angry about the injustices that you see in the world. God also is angry about the injustices that he sees in the world. But that righteous anger turns to sinful anger when it overflows its boundaries. And so explosive anger is always sinful. Anger that festers in the heart leading to bitterness is sinful. And anger that moves us to take vengeance against others is sinful. As the scriptures say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. As I have said, there is such thing as righteous anger, but men do sometimes struggle to control their passions. Instead of exercising self-control, men do sometimes allow their emotions to drive them to wrath, to bitterness, and even to vengeance. The apostle also forbids quarreling or arguing. As with anger, there is nothing sinful about presenting an argument. One may argue a case in a righteous manner. If presenting an argument were inherently sinful, then Christ himself would be guilty of sin, wouldn't he? And so too would the Apostle Paul. Many of his letters present arguments. Indeed, uh, Paul was, con- was concerned to to, to have Timothy confront the false teachers in the church of Ephesus, this would require confrontation and argumentation from, from Timothy. He would need to do this very thing. Paul is not forbidding the art of argumentation, but rather he is forbidding an argumentative spirit. And there is a big difference between those two things. The word quarreling does get to the point. There's a clear difference between presenting an argument and being argumentative. And the difference resides within the heart. The one who is quarrelsome makes very little effort to understand the other. He's reckless with his words. He cares more about winning the argument than promoting the truth. And so as is the case with the wrathful person, so it is with the quarrelsome person. Both lack self-control. Both are driven by their passions. As James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why, where, where do these quarrels come from that your passions are out of control within you? You're being driven to and fro by your emotions. And brothers, if we are to live lives of holiness before the Lord, we must learn to control our passions. We cannot be driven by them. I think it is important to recognize that God has made us in such a way that we have affections. Just a part of who we are as human beings. As humans, we perceive the world. We see things all about us. We consider these things to be either good or bad. We make judgments about the things that we see. And then our affections naturally move us to celebrate and to draw near to that which is good and to grieve and to reject that which we see as bad. That is what our affections do. They're really wonderful, aren't they? Affections. The trouble is, now that we are fallen into sin, our affections are often bent out of shape. We often consider what is bad to be good and what is good to be bad. We see it in the world all about us, and we even see remnants of this within our own hearts, though we be regenerated, right? Sometimes we see what is bad to be good and what is good to be bad. And even when we get things right in this regard, our affections often overflow their proper bounds. And when they do, they are properly called passions. We are no longer an affectionate person, but we are a a passionate person being driven by our emotions. So fathers, it is right for you to be angry with your son when he disrespects his mother. That is right. Why is it right? Because he has violated the law of God. It is right that you are upset about the fact that your son has just disrespected your wife. But when you explode in anger, this is sinful. You're being driven in that moment by your passions. Passions are affections misdirected. Passions are affections overflowing their proper bounds. And brothers, I am saying that we must learn to control our sinful passions. We must not be driven by them. We must develop self-control. We must be governed by the Word of God and driven by His Spirit instead. 1 Peter 1.14 Again, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Galatians, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 2.22 So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Galatians 5.22 And remember that the, the, spirit of, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so the wrathful and quarrelsome person is driven by his passions. But we must develop self-control in Christ Jesus. For the Apostle has said, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The same applies to women but Paul is here addressing besetting sins. Secondly, Paul addresses the females in the congregation, saying in verse 9, Likewise, also, 
that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The word likewise at the beginning of verse 9 is very important. It indicates that Paul's command for the women is similar to his command for the men. Women are also to pray in every place, and women are also to lift up holy hands to the Lord. The same principle is being applied to them. The word likewise does indicate that. When Paul urged that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, his desire was that both men and women would pray within the Christian congregation. The word likewise links the instructions for men and the instructions for women together. Both are to lift up holy hands to the Lord in prayer. This is because men and women are one in Christ Jesus. Both are unified to Christ by faith. Both have been reconciled to God the Father through the mediator, Christ Jesus. Men and women are heirs together of the grace of life, as Peter has said. Both have bold access, therefore, to the throne of grace. Women, like men, are to pray, lifting holy hands up to the Lord. Paul's instructions for men and women, men and women differ in two ways. One, notice that the men are addressed first, and concerning the men, Paul explicitly says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. I think it is right, therefore, to urge the men to lead in prayer within the Christian congregation, while at the same time urging the women to pray also. As I've already said, sadly, the opposite is often true. Two, Paul's instructions for men and women also differ in regard to the besetting sins that he identifies. Men, and, men are warned to cease from anger and quarreling, but the women are warned concerning vanity and immodesty. There are, of course, exceptions to this rule, too. Men may also be vain and immodest, but in general, women do care more about their physical appearance and outward beauty than do men. Throughout the history of the world, cultures have pressured women to obsess over outward appearance, and ours is certainly no different. It is probably even extreme in this regard. Again, Paul is here urging men and women to lift holy hands in prayer to the Lord, but he's addressing besetting sins. Men, stop the anger and the quarreling. Women, be sure to pursue modesty in the whole of life. And that is what the apostle commands. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Respectable may also be translated as suitable or proper apparel. Women are to dress in a manner that is proper. We might then ask, well, proper for what? Verse 10 will answer that question, saying, proper for women who profess godliness. Christian women should dress in a way that fits their profession of faith. Their dress is, their dress is to be modest, the text says. Their dress should correspond to a heart that loves God more than the things of this world. In their dress, women should be careful not to lead others to sin. And their moderation will be the result of their self-control, that is to say, of their good judgment and decency, as the text says. The positive command is that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. That is the command that governs everything else that the apostle says. What is his point, you might ask? Well, it is this, modesty, self-control is to be displayed by Christian women. But the same command is stated negatively with the words, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Many have wondered about this text. What is it forbidding exactly? Is this text forbidding Christian women from ever braiding their hair, wearing gold or pearls? I would say no. This text is not forbidding women from ever braiding their hair or wearing gold or pure pearls. Instead, this text is forbidding extravagant dress and immodesty. 
As one commentator puts it, it is the excess and sensuality that the items connote that Paul forbids and not braids, gold, pearls, or even costly garments in and of themselves. And I agree with that. Here Paul is piling up these terms for us. He's talking about braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire. The original audience would have thought of the way that the wealthy in their society dressed. They may even have thought of the dress of the harlot. And Paul is saying that Christian women should avoid this extravagant and sensual style. Instead, they should do what he has said already. Positively, he has stated it. They should dress with modesty. Of course, the way that men and women dress will differ from culture to culture. But his word of warning can always be applied in every culture. Any culture can take up the text of Scripture here and apply it to their particular norms in regard to the dress of men and women. Women can pursue modesty in each and every culture. Instead of clothing themselves in an extravagant and sensual manner, Christian women should dress in a way that is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so the exhortation is this, sisters, clothe yourselves with godliness. Clothe yourselves with good works. Don't be so consumed with your external appearance, but be sure that you are clothed with godliness and good works. And teach the younger women to do the same. This is what the apostle is encouraging. He is encouraging you to see that true beauty is not external, but internal. And this sounds a lot like something that Peter himself wrote. And I think this passage is even more well known. To Christian wives, Peter said, do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That is a beautiful passage. He's saying the same thing that Paul the Apostle says. That is 1 Peter 3, 3 3-4. It kind of gives you the impression that this was um, teaching that was common in the early church, doesn't it? To hear Paul and Peter write such similar things to their audiences, evidently uh, this was a concern to be sure that men and women conducted themselves properly within the Christian congregation. This teaching was common. How important it is for women and particularly young women to learn this lesson that true beauty resides within. And the beauty within is beauty that is imperishable. To use Peter's language, it does not fade but increases with the passing of time as you grow in godliness. Pursue that, sisters in Christ. So both men and women are to pray within the Christian congregation. Both are to pray lifting holy hands to the Lord. Men and women are to live holy lives, being mindful of besetting sins and being eager to develop self-control. Neither men nor women can be driven by the passions of the sinful flesh now that they are in Christ Jesus. That seems to be Paul's point. Thirdly, As Paul considers the genders and seeks to bring order to the church of the living God, he commands that women learn while forbidding them to teach or to have authority over men within the church. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The command is this, Let a woman learn. It is not only the men who are to be taught, but the women also. Now, in our modern age, this probably does not strike you as being all that impressive. 
all the women are looking at me right now saying, of course. Um, but I think you do know that at certain times and in certain places throughout the history of the world, women have been excluded from learning. But what does Paul say? He insists that the women are to learn alongside the men in the Christian congregation. And this certainly corresponds to what Jesus himself modeled in his earthly ministry. Not only did he teach his 12 disciples, who were the apostles of the early church, all being men, but he taught women also. In fact, it would seem that some of his closest friends were women. Think of his relationship with Mary and Martha, for example. Do you remember that story where they there were... Martha, in particular, sitting at the feet of Jesus, being instructed by him. Um, did I have, do I have that backwards? One of them was busy working, the other sitting at his feet. I've confused myself in the middle of a sermon here. But you, you, you get it. Like he, was, he was close with these women. He instructed them. It was not just his, his disciples who were all men who received instruction, but women also. Um, this corresponds to the model that Jesus set for us. And this also corresponds to the record of the book of Acts. Women played a very important role in the expansion of the church in those early days. Women are to be given a place alongside men in the Christian congregation. They are to sit side by side under the ministry of the word. They are to learn together. They are to pray together. And they are to work together for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. The New Testament makes all of this very clear. But notice that Paul commands women to learn with all submissiveness. So up to this point... It has been the unity between men and women that has been stressed. Both are to pray, lifting up holy hands to the Lord. Both have equal access to the Father as image bearers, redeemed and reconciled by the blood of the Lamb. But here the apostle acknowledges the difference between males and females and commands that the women learn quietly within the church with all submissiveness. The positive command is let a woman learn quietly, though, with all submissiveness, he says. And the matter is stated negatively with the words, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So there the positive command is restated, but in a negative way. I think it is important to note what Paul does not say. One, he does not say that a woman is never to teach. Instead, Paul has the authoritative teaching ministry of the church in view. A woman is not to teach in an authoritative way when the congregation consisting of men and women is assembled. In that context, which is the context we are now in, she is to remain quiet, the apostle says. But it may be that she speaks and teaches in other settings. Two, he does not say that females may never have authority over males. Again, Paul is addressing teaching and authority within Christ's church. And three, Paul is not saying that women must remain absolutely quiet. In fact, they were just urged to pray. Again, he is clearly addressing authoritative teaching when the church is assembled. Remember, he wrote to Timothy so that he may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. We're to keep that in mind always. He is here addressing the church assembled. That women have an important role to play in the church and may even be used of the Lord to teach in certain contexts is illustrated by that story concerning Apollos found in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 and following. It, in, in fact, the New Testament is filled with examples of women being used mightily of the Lord, but this story, I think, is most pertinent. In Acts 18, 24, we read, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Paul 
is writing to Timothy, who was ministering in Ephesus here. So same location. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That is interesting. This all transpired in Ephesus, as I've already said, which is where Timothy ministered. But more to the point, both Priscilla and her husband Aquila were used of the Lord to teach Apollos, who was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. What did they do? They took him to the side and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So in no way does this passage suggest that it was improper for Priscilla to be involved with this. But do pay careful attention. They took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. So you were able to see that Priscilla, she did not hold office of pastor and teacher in the church, but she was used of the Lord to teach others, even this gifted leader within the church named Apollos. I think this text does shed some light on the New Testament teaching in this regard. Now, it goes without saying that this teaching, which distinguishes between male and female and commands that women take a place of submission within the church, being forbidden to teach or to exercise authority over a man, which means that a woman cannot hold the office of elder or deacon, all of this is countercultural. Our modern and progressive culture scoffs at this. They consider it to be oppressive towards women. In fact, certain factions within our culture are even more radical than this. They scoff at the way in which the scriptures distinguish between the genders. Uh, You can feel it all about you. So here is the question. Is the church permitted to go with the flow of the culture by dismissing this teaching from Paul as belonging to a bygone era? Are we permitted to do that? Are we permitted to recognize that all of this just does not fit with the predominant view, perhaps, within our culture? Are we permitted to ignore this text, claiming that these were only cultural norms in Paul's day? And so Paul is simply saying, because these are the cultural norms, you should maybe conduct yourself in this way within the church so as to not disrupt things. Is that what is going on here? Indeed, there are some things described in the Scriptures that are not timeless, but belong to a particular era or culture, and we are right to move on from them. There are some things like that in the Holy Scriptures. For example, perhaps you have noticed we do not sacrifice animals at the temple in Jerusalem anymore. And rightly so. That custom belongs to a bygone era. We have progressed beyond it, and rightly so. But there is a reason for this, and this is the point. There is a reason for the progression, and it is a reason that we have from God and from the Scriptures. The temple worship was instituted not at creation, but under Moses. Furthermore, it foreshadowed Christ, who is the true temple and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When the Christ came, He fulfilled the old covenant and established the new covenant, and temple worship was rightly taken away. There is a reason for the progression and for the change. But what about this teaching concerning males and females within the church? And though it is not our focus today, we might ask the same thing concerning the biblical teaching regarding the roles of husbands and wives within the family. And I think you would do well to notice that they mirror one another. They mirror one another. May we dismiss these teachings as old-fashioned and outdated? And the answer is no, for Paul roots this teaching not in the Old Covenant, 
not in culture or custom, but in creation. Men and women are to be considered equal, and yet women and wives are called to take a posture of submission in the church and family because this was God's design from the very beginning. Look at verse 13. Here the apostle says, For, that little word is very important, isn't it? For, Adam was formed first, then Eve. The word for is important because it indicates that Paul is about to explain why things are to be this way. Why are they to be this way, the apostle? Well, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Women are to take this posture of submission within the church and are forbidden from teaching and having authority over the men in the congregation because of God's design at creation. Not only is Paul drawing our attention to the order of creation, first the man was made, then the women, then the woman but he is reminding us of the whole creation narrative. We are to remember not just this fact, the order, first the man, then the woman, but the whole creation narrative. And what do we learn when we read that creation narrative? It's such an important and foundational passage of Scripture for us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? When we consider the creation story, we remember that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And what did he do with the earthly, earthly realm that was at first without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep? What did he do with that, that unformed realm called the earth? Well, he in the span of six days brought it in to order. He ordered it. Our God is a God of order. And the order of the natural world was established by him at the time of creation. And that includes the order that is to exist between husband and wife within the home and males and females within the church of the living God. Adam was formed first, remember, but he found no suitable companion. It's a beautiful story. All of the animals were living creatures, but they were not human. It could not be a companion for, for the man. They were not image bearers. So God created the woman. She was taken from Adam's flesh, meaning that she shares his nature. She's human. She is an image bearer. And furthermore, she was not taken from his feet so as to be a slave, nor was she taken from his head so as to be a superior. She was taken from his side to be his companion. God made the woman to be a helper fit for him. And what was Adam's response when he first saw her? What did he do? I think it comes out more strongly in the Hebrew. But he said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He just celebrates. When he sees the woman, he says, what a beautiful thing. She's been made to correspond to me. She's just like me. We're not, we're not the same, thankfully. We're different. She corresponds to me, but she's, she's an image bearer. He, he celebrates her creation. And so this order that was established at creation will remain for all time. Men and women are of equal dignity of worth. They stand side by side on an equal plane as image bearers of God, and they stand side by side as co-heirs in Christ Jesus. But they are not the same. They were made different so that they might correspond to one another. Thanks be to God. I, I hope that that is your perspective. Thanks be to God. This is beautiful. This is not something to be fought against or ashamed of. It's something to be celebrated. This is beautiful. The way that God has designed the world, the way that he has created the human race. We have this wonderful unity and yet there is diversity within it and the diversity is beautiful. When men and women rebel against God's design, against his design, disorder and wickedness prevail. When men and women rebel against God's design, disorder and wickedness prevail. In verse 14, Paul reminds us not of creation, 
But of man's fall into sin, when he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Why does he say that? You see what he's doing? He's pointing us, first of all, to the creation story, the creation of man and woman as image bearers of God. And now he makes this little remark that draws our attention not to Genesis 1 or 2, but to Genesis 3 and the story of the fall. Adam fell into sin there. Because he failed to be the head that God had called him to be. He fell into sin when he did not fulfill his responsibilities. The covenant was transacted with Adam. He was the one responsible. He was forbidden from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was commissioned to keep and expand the garden temple. When he ate of that forbidden fruit, he ate willfully and defiantly. But the woman was deceived. She failed to be the helper that God had called her to be. I think what Paul is doing is he's drawing our attention not just to this one verse but to this entire narrative to remind us that look at all of the disorder and chaos that has come about because the man and the woman in the beginning rejected God's design and they failed to live according to their calling. When Paul reminds us of the order of creation he is urging us to live according to God's design within the church. When Paul reminds us of man's fall into sin he is reminded us of of where a disregard of God's design will inevitably lead to sin, to disorder, to death. Before we conclude, let us briefly consider this little remark found in verse 15. It's a fascinating little remark, and it's actually caused many to scratch their heads and wonder what it means exactly. Concerning the woman, Paul says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? She will be saved through childbearing. Huh. There's actually about five different interpretations of this verse. I'll give you the one that I agree with, and not all five of them. Given that Paul has just mentioned man's fall into sin through the deception of the woman, here here in verse 15, he reminds us of the gospel, that through the offspring of the woman, a Savior would come into the world. I think that is the proper interpretation here. He reminds us here in verse 15 of the gospel, that through the offspring of the woman, a Savior would come into the world. Eve was deceived, leading to Adam's sin, but she, that is Eve, along with those women who would descend from her, would be saved through the process of childbearing. Eve, the Virgin Mary, along with every other woman that bridged the gap between them, would be used of the Lord to bring the Savior into the world. And through that process of childbearing, all women and men will be saved if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so what is required to be saved except faith in the Messiah, faith in the Christ who did descend from Eve. Through the seed of the woman, the serpent has been defeated. Through the seed of the woman, salvation has come. The word yet at the beginning of verse 15 is important. I think it clues us into the irony. Through the woman, Eve, temptation was brought to Adam. And through him, sin and death came into the human race. But in and through the woman, Mary and the second Adam, the Christ was brought into the world and through him salvation to men and women came to every tongue, tribe, and nation. As I conclude, I I will just say something about what I'm tired of in our modern age. I'm a little bit tired 
of Christians in this culture acting as if they are ashamed because they hold to these old traditional views concerning men and women in the family and church. You can almost feel it. You preach on this passage in the congregation and they're just, not, not so much with you, I will admit it, but I've preached on this subject before. You, there's, there's an uneasiness, you know, that fills the room. And I think a lot of Christians, they, they believe this, but they don't really want to admit it. They don't want to talk about it in, in, amongst the broader culture. But brothers and sisters, why would you be ashamed of living according to God's design? Why would you be ashamed of it? His design is clearly revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture, but it is also revealed in nature so that all have access to this truth. And I do believe that an unbiased consideration of marriage and the family clearly reveals that this is how things are meant to be. And I'm saying to you, do not be ashamed of this, brothers and sisters. Instead, put the beauty of God's design on full display. Show the world how this is meant to be and how wonderful it is when it works. Men, do your part in the church and home. Do your part. And women, do your part in the church and home. In all of this, we are to love one another. We are to honor one another. And we are to thrive together so that the world may see the glory of God and the image of God in His creation. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we thank You for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the church, which is the assembly of those who have been redeemed. We do pray that you would help us to be properly ordered within the church of Christ. Father, we pray that we would be properly ordered so that we might thrive, so that we might give you glory. We even pray that the world would look in upon us and not see disorder and dysfunction and every wicked thing, but that they would see beauty here, that we would put before the world how things are supposed to be and how glorious and enjoyable they are when we live according to your design. Father, help us as your people. We are by nature children of wrath and sinners, and some of us have lived in the world for a very long time before coming to faith in Christ. We have to relearn these things, but help us to submit all of us together to your most holy word. Help us to order our lives individually in our homes, in our churches, according to the word of God. And may you get the glory, we pray in Christ's name.